0: welcome back to the podcast. I hope this finds you well. I'm pretty fired up. We had a really cool session today with Coaches Rising with the company, and we were tuning into our vision for the world, for coaches playing a role in these times to help us navigate these times so that we can find new ways of thriving together on this planet and so I'm excited to bring you this podcast today with Michael Mead who is a mythologist, he's a renowned storyteller, scholar of mythology and anthropology and psychology and author of books like Awakening the Soul and the Genius Myth. I have really loved his podcast the Living Myth podcast in the last months. Uh, You really hear and feel his storytelling genius in that. And we're going to talk today about soul and how these are soul-making times and that we are in a collective uh, rite of passage and that we're in a liminal space. And so Michael will talk about the invitation in these times. How do we respond? What's the call? And we'll talk about genius, this unique soul offering that each one of us has here to give in this lifetime, and why, as we become more disconnected from soul, the times become more soul-making. That's the paradox of these times. And so Michael will also share about how he learned to see the genius in the young people that he supported. And there's lessons for us as coaches in this. So, you know, um, I'm halfway through the podcast. Later on in the podcast, Michael will really talk about how do we see others' genius. So it's a very rich conversation. As usual, I'll say if you feel like sharing this podcast, I'd be very grateful. I just want to spread the word. And that if you're listening and you want to join our community of Coaches who I'm, you know, who humble me, they're deeply committed fiercely to their own growth and sense of service in the world to, to create deep transformation. And you can do so by heading to our website, coachesrising.com, and you can find a sign up box. Just put your name in there, and you'll stay in the loop about our other offerings that are not this podcast. So hope to see you there. And then let's dive in here's the podcast with Michael Mead Michael It's great to see you again. Good to see you Joel. Good to be yeah. back excellent i'm uh, even more it feels even more pertinent to speak to you. We spoke a few months ago at the uh, the summit, and um, your session was really well received and um, I want to talk to you today about the times we find ourselves in and this idea of soul and myth and, and genius. Cause I think these are soul making times, you know, that's, and I'm pretty sure, sh- well, I'm curious to see how you see these times. So maybe you could, you could just riff on wherever, the, whatever that brings up in you, like for a start.
1: Well, um, if someone asked me, what's the one um, problem that I could name, In a world that's in trouble and in crisis in so many ways, Uh, the first thing I would say is loss of soul. So um, soul is a thing that's hard to define. You tend to know it when it's not there uh, because it's a bit mysterious, but it's really the connective tissue of life. Soul is what gives coherence to an individual's life. Soul is really what's present when when we feel in relationship with someone else. And then in mythology, the idea is the individual soul is secretly connected to the soul of the world. And so nowadays, a person can feel like the anguish of the world. Sometimes I think I hear the earth crying because of climate crisis, but also because of the coronavirus pandemic and also the loss of species and all the things that are going on. And that feeling is a soul feeling. It, it's, not, it's not an idea or it is for some people, for, for a lot of people, it's a soul feeling. Um, and so um, on one hand, there's a loss of soul. When you get to the intensification of pole and polar polarization, of political parties and and um, groups inside cultures becoming more and more polarized, that's loss of soul. If we had the soulful connection to other people, we can't uh, kind of condem- condemn them readily or make them into uh, evil people because we feel the soul connection. And so for various reasons, there's a loss of soul, and that makes it a time for making more soul. And... Um, even the things that allow people to uh, exploit and mistreat the environment, that's a loss of soul. Because even if you just go back through history, people were more connected to nature. They were more connected to the environment that they were in and the ecology that they were in. So uh, it's a dramatic loss of soul and a dynamic need for making soul. And then the mythological version of that, is that we're living uh, at the end of an era or the collapse of a worldview. Um, it's not just that we need a different world, we need a different worldview. We need to see the world differently. Um, and soul has a role there too, because the idea of the, the world being alive, the world soul, which was a concept, I think a felt experience for most tribal and traditional people we're gonna have to find our way into that again. Um, So this is a period of, in mythology, I I call it from that point of view, collapse and renewal. Uh, The word apocalypse, which has become connected to zombies and, and, and religious ideas of the fiery end of the world, which is not what apocalypse means. It's a Greek word, apocalypsis. And what it means is a lifting of the veil where people see things they hadn't seen before. They see behind the curtain. You see how politics works. You see how public health doesn't work in many places. And so we're seeing things that were behind the veil more. Uh, you get more of a raw view of certain parts of life also, life and death. Every day here in America, it's like with a COVID pandemic, it's like life and death just all the time. Um, and so that's what apocalypsis means. Uh, The second meaning of it is the end and the beginning, the collapse and the renewal. So mythologically, um, the world can't come to an end. The way we see the world comes to an end. A certain era comes to an end, certain ecological systems come to an end, but secretly it's all beginning again. And it's not simply end and then beginning, the beginning is hidden inside the ends. And as it's ending, it's also beginning. And so there's kind of a hope in that. Um, And there's kind of a connection to what used to be known as the uh, life, death, rebirth, mystery which is the essence of nature is the essence of cosmology and it's really the essence uh, of life. But people don't know that anymore. Mm -hmm. People think you can have a beginning and a middle and an end and it's all over. Not how it works. It -hmm. renews. The word end doesn't even mean fiery completion. The word end is actually the meaning of it is remnant or loose end. So at the seeming end, there's a loose end from which it begins again. That's the hopeful part. Living through such a collapse and renewal is truly painful and truly disturbing and the cause of collective anxiety and intensification of
0: fears. Yeah. So much in what you said there. Because, um, you know, we checked in and I said, like, things have been going pretty okay in the Netherlands. But actually, you know, that that's like not really true because we all like, we all feel it, you know, like me and all my friends, we all feel this deep, just dis- this sense of anguish and mm. uh, a call a, a kind of liminal space, a sense of dying and, and, um, um, an invitation to reconciliation too. And, um, and, 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 and in myself, I felt this despair and yet paradoxically a, a, an even greater sense of aliveness as well. It seems like paradoxical times,
1: Yeah, I agree. It's uh, very paradoxical, very ironic at times. There's all kinds of things. Having a tolerance for paradox, having an interest in irony is really helpful as a psychological tools because those things come up all the time now. And um, I don't think anybody is fully escaping it because it's, we're, so this is a radical time to be alive. You have nature, unraveling in certain ways and you have culture collapsing in certain ways. So every way you turn, there's something that's traumatic, really. And so that's part of it. But at the same time, it can be enlivening because it's life and death. It's always been life and death, but it's more clear now that it's life and death. And if we you follow back into history, just even doing the historical part of it, and you get back to local, uh, cultures and tribal traditional groups, people were much closer to the life and death all the time because they were living in and with nature. And nature is life, death, renewal. And so that was the big mystery. And people used to understand that human nature was connected to great nature, which means that we had the opportunity to consciously experience the life, death, renewal process. That's supposed to be one of the jobs of humans. Uh, a lot of the poets at one time were saying, if you don't know and haven't personally experienced the mystery of, you could call it life-death-renewal or birth-death-rebirth, if you don't know that, you're not alive yet. Mm-hmm. So the, the the knowledge of dying, the knowledge of loss is not uh, necessarily... Um, a completely negative thing because it's tied to the knowledge of rebirth and renewal. And, you know, here in, in the States where we're just the, the um, COVID-19 is going totally wild. I mean, almost unimaginable we're approaching 2000 uh, people dying a day. Uh, excuse me. I, I can't even say it right. We're approaching, I can't even say what the number is. It's so big right now but it might be more than 2000 people a day. Um, And it's hard to comprehend that, but you feel it. And so it's as if we're thrown into this dynamic of life and death. And the third part of that, myth is about the third thing, right? Myth is always about threes. The third thing is charm. Uh, The the three brothers in the stories, the three sisters in the story, it's always about threes and and the third thing in the mystery is rebirth and renewal that's the third thing and somehow we have to find a connection to that while it seems like everything is falling apart and fracturing
0: and I, just um that grabs me cuz it fits with how these feel like the um you know the these are soul making times because of the loss of soul, you know, again, that paradox in that, you know, and yeah. there's something about embracing that sense of, um, the, 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 the life we are in and the, the, how disconnected from soul we become in and how that's actually the, one of the very things that's a doorway into reconnecting with soul.
1: I just did a podcast yesterday or the day before, I don't remember, but, um, and I was making the, um, the contrast between here in America, we have a lot of people that are denying that there's a, a pandemic at all. And, and, and they're denying all kinds of things and trying to act as if it's not happening. So that would be the most soul numbing thing a person can do when you're confronted with death and loss mortality, fragility. Denial is a a defense that diminishes the soul. So I was calling that uh, discussion or that presentation um, the contrast between denial, which divides a person from themselves and one person from others and so on, with uh, grief, which is a human emotion, that unites and it also cleanses. So, um, the soul is always has been considered the place where the emotions come and go. You know, they come and go through the body. They come and go with some connection to the mind, but the soul has always been understood as the, as the feeling place, the emotional place, as opposed to say, uh, logos and logic, which is more in the head and more in the mind, that kind of thing. So the emotions are going to come through the soul and emotions are an indication of the presence of the soul. Um, And so, and then people get hung up on positive and negative emotions. I don't know that they would discuss that with the emotions. I don't think the emotions think of themselves as positive and negative. Um, William Blake said, each emotion is a divine influx. So that's an interesting idea. But when you get to the, uh, the emotions, I always think about each, the word emotion is really the word motion with an E in front of it. So that makes me think each emotion has a motion. That's my theory of emotions. Mm-hmm. And so like anger will stand you straight up and you'll look straight at whatever the issue is. Uh, whereas uh, humiliation or let's say embarrassment, which is connected to humiliation really means to lose your arms and so, and, and, uh, and shame, direct contrast to anger will cause you to bow your head and not look up at all. And so each motion, each emotion has emotion. And so then the old idea is that sorrow is a river that can cleanse out from a person all the things that are, that are no longer fully alive. That's the function of sor- sorrow, is to let things go. But by comparison, grief is an ocean. And grief is the ocean that we fall into when we have to really let go and, and almost get to a state that's close to the origin of life. And what I mean is people think of life coming out of the ocean. Grief takes us back into the ocean to wash us clean of everything that's not full of life so we can almost be reborn from uh, uh, the ocean again. And so for all kinds of reasons. And I don't know how it is in the Netherlands, but in the United States, uh, grief is denied. It's straight up denied. People resist grieving. And um, the leaders often you know, refuse to, or will not be seen in public crying. I mean, this is a time to cry in public, cry in private. There's reasons to cry almost any every moment now, and yet there's a refusal to do that. So we're at the point where Uh, A quarter of a million people in the United States have already died from COVID. And they're predicting that that will double in the next couple of months. That's something to cry about. I could cry about that every day. And the function of grief and weeping is to wash out that sense of corpses and death and bodies. Respectfully wash it out. And when it's washed out, you actually revive again there's another old idea about emotions that they travel in pairs. So grief travels with joy. When a person or society denies grief, they lose joy. When people allow grief to happen, they go through the motion of grief, which is deeply cleansing. And what's at the bottom is joy, like finding life again. And so that's how I see it. And we're in a grievous time. And, um, the more people could accept grief in the moment in in process of some kind, then the more the joy of life can come back. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. And uh, again, like, I, I, I don't know if I fully embraced my grief, but particularly at the start of the pandemic where I was like, holy shit, like, <laughs> like, like everything at one point I was like, everything I thought my life could be, I'm now holding lightly my business, my, my future. And I felt that the, the immensity of grief in that, but there was like a moment where it was like, just a sense of freedom. And I, and I think joy in that, you know, like liberation, sense of liberation, like the new can actually come in like all that dead stuff that I was, you know, the stuff that I, I thought I wanted, but it'd be kind of become a bit stale and, uh, you know, you just get on with life and you. But now I was just questioning everything. And I um, wonder about the invitation in these times, you know, like what I like about what you're talking about here is the invitation for us to reclaim our livingness and our emotions and our connection to nature. It seems like... The, that we 've reached the the pinnacle of um, you know the era of like um, relying on the mind and, and and rational rationality and and the the great things that 's brought us as a species collectively but that it's been partial and that we're being invited to you know expand who we are or reclaim indigenous uh, intelligences and wisdoms and Um, and so like, I'd love to explore that with you a bit. And also this idea of soul and that we can, I love what you say about the soul of the individual and the world, you know, and how I know in your writings, you write about how soul points to our genius, you know, like our unique place in life. And so, um, let me see what's my question here. It's, um, perhaps you could say something about the role of, um, of myth and an imagination, um, these different kinds of knowings that can help us to tune into our soul and our authentic expression of service in this lifetime. Because I know many people listening feel that call and um, will be inspired by what you point to.
1: So calling, which the old word for it is vocation to be called. Um, the calling, as I understand it, is not a general thing, it's a specific call to the soul. It's the soul that awakens, that becomes the kind of substance of awakening in a person. The call is to awaken the soul and specifically to awaken the spirit that's in the soul. So, so this, this gets back into old mythology stuff, but um, you mentioned the word genius. The word genius is a Latin word um, that means the spirit that's already there. It doesn't mean high IQ. It doesn't even mean specific talent. Talents are involved. A certain kind of intelligence can be involved, but it really means the spirit that's already there when a person is born. So this goes back to the two arguments about the nature of human nature. Uh, One idea is tabula rasa, they used to call it, the blank slate. A person is born, there, a blank slate. The family writes on them, the neighborhood writes on them, culture writes on them, and they're the sum of those impressions and their reactions to those repression uh, expressions and repressions and everything. The other story, which is the story told in all the cultures around the world at one time, is that the soul comes in with a core, with a seed of imagination, a core imagination and a seed of genius waiting to be broken open. The, the, the soul comes in with its own inner story, its own inner imagination, and it comes in aimed at something. So the calling is a call to awaken that spirit in the soul, the genius that's involved with it, the gifts that come with that genius and the aim or purpose that that soul came to life for. So uh, there's only two stories that I've ever heard uh, when you get right down to it. Either we're empty, blank slates when we come in, or we're that, we're aimed beings with an essential core imagination, a story waiting to unfold. Uh, And it's not that it's predetermined, It's like a living play, it's like a plot line. And the closer we are to the plot line, the more genuine we are, the more soul we have, the more spirit we have, the more able we are to give our gifts. And giving our gifts means serving something beyond ourselves, and this is the whole purpose of life, is to awaken to who we already are at the core, to learn how to express that, and then to learn how to give from that place and use that to serve something beyond ourselves. There as I can tell, that's the reason for being here. So to be born at this time, when nature is unraveling in many ways and culture is collapsing in many ways, the callings are all over the place. The world is calling for our genius, each one of us. And the genius can be expressed in all kinds of different ways. You know, there's the arts, which are expressive, but also there's the uh, the connections to nature. There are people being born who understand how to work with the e- ecological systems. Uh, once they awaken, they have that inside themselves. I'm not one of those. I'm not really, I love being in nature, but I don't understand it when I'm there. For me, it's about stories and myth and imagination and expressive arts. But for someone else, we're talking about life and death. There are people who have it in them to It's already happening to reimagine how people die, to reimagine funerals. Uh, There are people with that in them already. And so when people respond to the call, it's in a specific way that, and it doesn't mean it's the end of the problems. We still go through fear and anxiety and, and grief and, and we go through all the things of life, but we're going through it with purpose. We're going through it with aim. Um, and, And that means it has more meaning. And it has more capacity for self-fulfillment. But the old idea is when a person lives out their calling, um, they're not just satisfying themselves, they're improving the world. I'm I mean, that's important.
0: I could feel that now, you know, as you speak to me, you speak to my soul and I feel what that evokes in me, you know, like it com- coming through you. And I I wonder how people can begin to um, yes, tune into the calling, but what, you know, tune into that. What is that genius? What is that, that specific thing there here to be given? What would you say to, about that?
1: It's, it's a little bit tricky because, my, you know, I, I wrote a book called uh, The Genius Myth, and I was trying to say this is the only myth I've seen recognized in culture in the time I've been alive has been the hero's myth. And it's a great story, and there's a lot of value that comes from it. But it is limited in certain ways. It tends to be masculine in style. It tends to be muscular in practice. It tends to be aimed at something outside. And and it tends to suggest that a person has to be heroic to be themselves. And I don't think that's completely true. I disagree with the people that said it's the monomyth. There can't be a monomyth. Myth is like nature. It only appears in multiplicity. There's no single answer, there's no single story. I don't go there. I go with nature, the earth, with the roots that are multiple and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I've been trying to make the argument that everyone has genius. Not everyone is a genius, but everyone has genius. And I got into it working with severely at-risk youth, gang kids, homeless kids who are really lost and doing self-damage and damage to the neighborhood and damage to other people. And if I started to talk to them about their genius, they would listen and they could get it. They could get that notion. So that's how I got into thinking uh, uh, about it more seriously and understanding this idea that everyone has some genius. So then the, the question becomes, if everyone has some genius, why aren't more people doing it? <laughs> and, and and there's where the trick comes. So the first thing is, uh, there's several ideas maybe. One is the genius will announce itself somewhere in early in childhood typically pre-adolescent this is a psychological theory that between 9 and 11 the child will act out some aspect of the genius i've seen it i have children i've raised children i've seen it happen Uh, but what often happens is the family's not interested in that genius Mm. the genius is a spirit it's not produced by the parents it's a spirit it's a spiritual capacity of the person um, and so families often have expectations of a child and and rarely do families understand the genius of their own children and everybody knows that story whether you're expected to go to this school or have this profession and inside this this other imaginations this other spiritual quality that says no i have to go this way so often it it expresses itself. The genius is is a radical thing. It's not outside the box. It's, I mean, outside yeah, the box. It's off the map. Mm-hmm. You know, when you recognize someone's genius, they're doing something very unusual, often with the same experience other people have. But what they do with it is unusual. Mm-hmm. So by its nature, genius is, um, is extreme. And it's going to take a person outside the box they were born into. And that can be... Uh, experienced as other people who have expectations as a negative thing. So it gets shut down. Mm. So there's a key thing after during or after adolescence in the majority of the history of humanity, young people, girls and boys would go through a a rite of passage or an initiation. And, 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 there's all kinds of things in anthropology and history about it, and you can read about it and how it's misused and all kinds of stuff. But if you get to the core of it, at least for me, here's what I see at the core. The young person has to leave the family to become themselves. That's the basic setup. If the family could give us everything we needed, we'd just stay home and be kids our whole life. So there's something inside, I call it the genius, that needs to go out because there's something in us that it wants to be given to the world, not just get us in the world, but help us to give what we have to the world. And people recognize that and however they recognized it. And so they had rites of passage. And uh, there's three steps in the rites of passage. Separation, you leave everything, family, you're outside the family, you're outside the community. And uh, so I've been saying to people, we're in a rite of passage now. Because we're, we're socially distancing, we're, we've left the world that we used to know behind and it's not coming back. We're in a rite of passage. But anyway, in the individual rite of passage, then in the middle ground would be the ordeal or the struggling part. And then two things I think are supposed to happen there. One is the awakening of and recognition of the genius in the person. So that there are people there who know it, they've been through it themselves, and here comes this boy or this girl, and they watch and they see the genius and they say, we see it, here's what it is. I've done this with young people for decades. You can actually learn how to do it. You can see it. Young people are often trying to show it. And everybody says, well, they're showing off or demanding attention. They're trying to wake up
0: and get blessed. Can I ask you about that? Just um, before you, because this is really important, and I want to make sure I because a lot of people listening are coaches. Yeah. And I I am, I am um, on fire about people's genius being recognized in the world. And so you, you, how do you see that in the, and I want to come back to the uh, rite of passage, but how did you see that in these young people? Like, how did you recognize it? Oh, and what were you seeing?
1: And and this goes back to the soul. So certain time in my life, I had, some good fortune, right? I, I I wrote a book and it sold, you know, people bought it. I got paid. I I, I wrote about, um, really the soul. I wrote about the water of life, the, the, the thing that gives life when people are missing life. I didn't even know if I could write, I just did it. And so it kind of worked. So suddenly I found myself in this odd position where, um, I had, more money than i was spending like for the first time in my life and and i actually had to say what am i going to do you know and i remember someone saying get a big house you know but my the feeling i had and i don't know why the feeling i had is i have to give back i have to start giving back and then i thought where could i give back and be effective and i grew up kind of rough sometimes in the streets in neighborhoods that had gangs and that kind of stuff. And I, and I know how it is to be a young person and be lost. So I'm gonna work with young people. That's what I decided. And um, so I started doing that. And I started doing it in places like uh, Chicago and Los Angeles and where there's a lot of gangs and a lot of street kids. And those are the ones I started to work with. And I was just hit really hard by the truth of that life, which is people die young. And I, I saw 15-year-old kids who know seven dead friends, this kind of thing. I was just pulled into this, the gravity and the gravitas of this kind of life where young lives are being lost. And I would work in a certain neighborhood, and then I'd come back a month later, and two kids that I had worked with were dead, or, or two others were gone off to jail. And I realized if I was going to talk to a young person or work with a young person, it might, I might have one chance to connect to them. And that's when I started to say, What could give me a connection to a young person? I decided it was genius. And I started to say to them, You know, you're a unique person. You know, I already know it. I just met you. There's no one like you in the world. There won't be anybody like you. And there's a part of you that came here to do something. And to my shock, they would just all go, Okay, wait a minute. I didn't know about this. Tell me more about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then I started to realize, I remember being in a, I did a lot of mentoring and I remember being in a room once where people were giving talks and I was waiting to give my talk and there was a lot of young people there. And someone stood up and said, you know, uh, you young people are also great, you know, and one of the kids raised their hand and said, okay, I hear you, but which part of great am I? And I thought, there it is. There it is. That's what we're all wanting to know. That's what we were all feeling when we were trying to fit in or trying to be seen, trying to be heard. So I started focusing on which part of grade each kid is. And there's things you can see. um, And and I'll give, there's lots of examples, but I think about this a lot because this was an unusual young guy. He was a leader of a gang, really rough gang, really rough neighborhood, really rough guy. And and one of his characteristics besides being able to knock anybody out was the way he cursed, the, the kind of volume of cursing but I thought the style of it was interesting. It was almost Shakespearean, you know? <laughs> and so I get to know him and, and, I, and I'm literally doing this with the gang saying, okay, well, I, you know, you're covering it up, but this one kid, you're actually empathic. You're empathic, that's why everybody talks to you. That's part of your genius. And I would try to work with that. And with him, I said, one day I figured out your genius. He goes, what the fuck you mean? <laughs> I said, it's exactly that. I said, your genius is language and you happen to be using it to curse, but you could use it to bless or do whatever you want. That's your genius. Right. And, and then he would ask me every time I was there, say more about that. Yeah. And, uh, and, so, yeah. and so what yeah. happened eventually is he went back to a community college, got his high school degree, started taking college courses in literature and he became like literate. And he became a storyteller and he became a mentor And, you know, his life wasn't easy, but he and I will never forget that. When I said to him, your genius is language. This guy was so tough. No one would think that, but that was it. So I don't know if that's helpful.
0: It's great. It's super helpful. And it's like what stands out is both there's something in the way he was using language that you you, you just could tell. Yeah. And perhaps that is the poetry of this. Yeah. It's like it's not science in that, you know, this is the formula. But no, you can feel it. You can sense it in that person. And then also the, the power of having it mirrored back, you know, that, that yeah. lit something up, it sparked something inside of him that didn't go out. And then he followed that on, on a journey. Yeah.
1: You know? Yeah. And I, I can see, so it made me think of another happened to be another boy, but I've seen the genius appears in girls and it, it's not gender related. When you get this kind of uh, capacity to insight you, it just works. But I happen to think of this other kid, so unlikely, the gang kid. And I tell stories, you know, so the, all, they love stories. So they, every time I'd go, we need a story. We'd all get inside the story, and I'd have them all talk. Say, what's the story of your life? Tell your story inside the story, and we'll get all insight. And this kid always did the same thing. And I realized one day, he's a philosopher. It's like this natural little philosopher who to everybody else is a tattooed gang kid worth nothing, but his real life, the way he understood and he talked about his life and his friends was philosophical. And so I started to explain to him what philosophy is and, you know, philosophia, it means the love of wisdom. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, man, but you're a little wisdom dude. So I don't know how far you can go with this violence because your own wisdom is telling you that's not the whole story. And, you know, so that's how I started to learn. And honestly, I took chances because I might never see them again.
0: Mm-hmm. That's what right. gave
1: me the right and the permission and the reason to take chances.
0: But there's something even in that that I think is important. Eh? Like, yeah. it's like that that container of like, I've got to take this chance. You know, it's like a yep. soul making moment even. Yeah, because it's like there's pressure here, you know, because so yeah. often it's easy to perhaps habituate or tune out a bit, you know, because there's more time and we can do it later. But no, it's like if if we could show up to people and say, this is it in this moment, you know, that actually that could bring a kind of seeing online, you know, where we could see and name their genius. And I think that's really beautiful.
1: Well, my understanding of coaching would include that in this sense Um, in, and I don't know how it is in the Netherlands, uh, but here in the States, often therapy um is seen as a strictly um psychological process mm, and and the idea primarily seems to be you know over time the pr- person will reveal themselves and the therapist will meet them in that place and that'd be good therapy but with young people and may- nowadays with anybody see the reason i'm talking about rites of passage is everybody's in a rite of passage whether people know it or not the, because the world is changing, it's already changed. So we're headed to a world that no one's seen yet. It's rite of passage stuff. But when, when I've worked with therapists, I often say that um, besides the therapeutic interchange, um, there are moments when a person has to give counsel um, or reveal the insight that they see Um, And I don't, and sometimes people hesitate because that's not part of the training, but it's part of the human training. And so to me, if I see something in someone, a person, especially a person in trouble or a young person, young people, all in trouble. Other people now are like young people in more and more trouble. I owe it to them. You know, I remember when I first started doing it and saying, well, what if I'm wrong? And I thought, well, I don't know. It's like 50, 50. If I'm right, it's a benefit. If I'm wrong, they're already hurting. So uh, probably not doing that much damage, Not because I'm not trying to control them. I'm not trying to say, now you have to go to college. I'm just saying, this is a part of you. If you were born in a different era, this would be a part of you. If you were born in a different family or a different uh, you know, kind of a collective situation, this would still be a part of you. I'm just trying to say, when you talk, I see the spark of your spirit or with someone else who's empathic when you cry, I can tell you're not crying out of self-pity. You're empathic. You have, cause you cry when your friend hurts. You know, I just started to do that and realize that with life being dangerous increasingly for everyone to not say, uh, is to not bless. Yeah. Because on a certain level, you could say all, all people are looking for recognition for who they really are but the old word for that would have been blessing. Yeah. People want to be blessed. Yeah. And, and it's kind of strange. At first it felt strange to me and I didn't want to be presumptuous, but just seeing these kids suffering so much and dying, I just thought got to do it, you know?
0: Yeah. But that, that sense of blessing and taking that risk, you know, that, on, on a personal level, we might say, oh, you know, who am I to say this or something? But maybe on a soul level, soul doesn't take risks. Uh, doesn't, soul takes risks, you know? It doesn't think in that way. It just, it just says and sees and it says like, this is it, like, who am I, you know, this has to be spoken. And so, um, and, and my sense is like, if it's coming from that place, probably that the likelihood of damaging is very low. Yeah, because it's it's a it's that got that exp- it's just the pure of expression, you know. Like it's not mixed in with the self so much. It's just like this is the spark I see right now. I want to share it. I'm unattached to what happens, but it behooves me to speak this out. So,
1: and if it's coming from the soul, we'll have right timing. Right, you could, you can recognize like with the leader of the gang there. It's not the first thing I should say to him.
0: Yeah. We
1: have to get to know each other. You know, he had to, we had to find a connection. He had to, he had to understand where I was coming from and, and even get that I could see where he was coming. We had to work that out. And then one day it seemed exactly right. Uh, He was, he was just enraged and inflamed but the way he was expressing it was almost Shakespearean and I I thought okay stay there but let me tell you why it's coming out like that what I see you know so so the the soul connection would give the right the right timing um so there's an so the other part right so I'm saying that rite of passage or initiation process would have served this goal of having people who are initiated somehow themselves complicated subject but anyway who are seeing the young people coming and say, I see you. Like in tribal groups, um, you know, everybody be watching each other. They all grew up close to each other and they knew each other's families. And so the, the initiator, mentor, coach types and the elders would actually know where each kid was coming from. I know your mom, your dad. I know the family history. I know the issues inside your family. So, so two things would happen. I'm, I'm, if I'm that person, I'm seeing you for who you are which your family cannot see hardly ever. And secondly, I see your wound and we're going to try and do some healing now. Mm -hmm. So that what happens is then in the ideal situation, each young person gets seen for their natural genius and gets some healing for their wound because everyone has a wound that's part of the human situation. And so Carl Jung, the depth psychologist, said genius hides behind the wound. Right. So that gives two approaches to the genius. You can see it when they express it, someone picks up an instrument and they can play. Uh, Not just because they have lessons, because they have genius. There's a difference between the two and you can learn the difference. And people that know music know that. Um, But if you can't find the genius expression in its positive form, go to the wound because genius is right next to the wound. So this leads to the second reason why why everybody has some genius, but not everybody knows it. Genius is close to the wound. The first reason is the family doesn't know the genius of the child. And nowadays, the community doesn't know the genius of the child. The second reason is when you find the the first problem is you don't know what the genius is and the second problem is you know what the genius is because the genius is right next to the womb these you could say are two of the deepest things in the soul mm-hmm. the, the genius spirit trying to come out and the wound trying to get healed and so in the in my sense of what the rite of passage would be in the middle part the ordeal ordeal part you would have um support in awakening identifying, acknowledging, and blessing the genius. And then you would have support and understanding and healing for the wound. And so that would make the two elements of the soul, the healing uh, part of the soul and the awakening part of the soul. And and that would make for a meaningful rite of passage. Mm. And what I'm suggesting is the whole world is going through that now. We're going through it collectively where the world needs our genius And the genius can't operate without the wound. And here's the shortcut to understand that. Um, You have people now who can become famous overnight. You know, they become a celebrity overnight and it's because it's a young person who has a talent for singing or music or a young person who has a talent for acting. And they get lifted up on the basis of their genius. And people give them adulation and attention and bright lights And within not too long a time, their wound will manifest. Mm -hmm. And you watch it throughout the history of popular music. You watch it, you know, I mean, I just happened to see the thing with Johnny Depp, who became famous as a young TV movie star, you know, now is revealed to have this terrible life that went into court and, and, and. People can say, well, he lost the case and there's all kinds of stuff like that. But his wound became as public as his yeah. celebrity life. And, the genius and the wound are traveling together.
0: And, and so would that be also a portal into the genius? So to <laughs> our wound, you know, like to say yes. like, well, what's my wound and what's the uh, genius on just on the other side of that? You know, that they're, they're intimately connected in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just on a personal level, I like I struggled for a long time and, and it still comes up with a sense of like be, being sovereign, being being allowed to be here, you know? And yet like I noticed in the work I do with my clients, it's often about empowering them in that very movement, you know, into a kind of soul yeah. taking the throne in their life, you know? Um, yeah. and, and so like they, I was like, huh, they seem so like, isn't that just interesting, you know? Oh, so, yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm saying I, I did all this work. I still do it with young people because that's I felt so unseen and then rejected, misunderstood and then mistreated as a young person that I carried that as a wound. That was a part of my wound. Mm-hmm. And so it made it, mm-hmm. made it legitimate for me to be there. You know, so not everybody is set up to work with violent young people. You know, I'm working with people that are armed and, um, and and it wasn't that I wasn't afraid is that I understand something of the territory. Right. And so a person, the soul um, will grow best if we're working in the territory that the soul already knows. Yeah. And so, so, as a person gets to know their own wound uh, that makes, uh, makes for clarity, makes for clarity about how to guide or how to teach or how to do therapy or how to coach. Um,
0: yeah. So. Can, I, can I, I know we haven't got long left, but there is yeah. one topic I want to, even if we have just a few minutes on it, yeah. which is about um, imagination, you know, like, so, Um, this idea of um, symbol and image, the the imaginal being one of these capacities that we've kind of cut off from, you know, that we, that we feel like we live in a, now in a, you know, scientific materialism created this like dead world, you know, where everything's just cold and inert and how actually we're being invited to reclaim imagination uh, as an intelligence, as a soul, initiator could you say just like whatever you think is important about that you know like what, whatever it brings up for you yeah
1: so um yeah th- there's like a uh, a tension or even a conflict between um mentality and um logic and imagination william butler Yeats, the poet said, uh, has, imagination has a way of alighting on the truth that reason cannot have. Um, and then Einstein, considered one of the smartest people, said imagination is more important than knowledge. And then the ancient Greeks said, um, "If to be a, a genuine person, you, you had to have, be double-minded or many-minded, they called it, many-minded. And they have this great talent for having two things, two ideas. Like the, for time, they have Chronos, the clock ticking march of time. And then they have Kairos, when the moment breaks open and, and it's timeless. We're living in Kairos now, by the way. It's a broken open moment. That's also part of the rite of passage. It's also part of the upset of the world. Um, but they said the, the ways to think about, um, well, understanding was logos, reason, logic, and mythos. Narrative intelligence, feelings, and understanding from the soul versus understanding from the mind. And so mythos, or the second kind of understanding the world, is based on imagination. And then the old idea is nothing can exist until it's first been imagined. Imagination is the doorway for everything that opens the world. And so... Another old idea, imagination is the deepest power of the human soul. The problem that I see when I, here in the States, when I watch the polarization in politics is unbelievable. It's just beyond anything I've ever seen before. But what's missing? They don't need another committee. They don't need another discussion. They don't need another election. They need imagination. They keep recycling the same ideas and winding up with the same result, whereas imagination could break open a territory that's not even available right now. So imagination is the full expression of genius, but it's also the natural expression of the soul. Um, and psychologically, the idea was um, this, a, a human being is a dream uh, around which a soul is wrapped around which is a body is wrapped. Way, way inside the core of a person in their soul is this imagination that's trying to awaken and then then trying to be expressed into the world. I mean, to me, that makes every person a surprise event. Every person automatically valuable Because at any moment, a person could awaken to who they are and what they're supposed to bring. And that will always have imagination in it. Um, Yet, to me, imagination is what's, besides soul being missing, often imagination is missing. Mm -hmm. And so people pretend they can solve it with logic. And logic can do certain things. It's one way of understanding and accounting for the world. But everything that logic can't do, Imagination can do. And so that side is called myth, myth, mythological. Mm. And the logic of myth is imagination, soul, deep feelings, intuitions, sudden awakenings. That's all logical in the world of myth, Mm. if not in the world of everyday. Mm.
0: Well, there's so much I could ask you further about this. It feels like, you know, we just sort of. touched into a really potent topic, but I want to also, we've got, we've run out of time, but maybe, you know, that's what we do. We leave people excited for, for more. And and what I would do when I, what I will do is plug your, um, your podcast and your work for sure. And where can we find out? Cause I love your podcast, by the way, it's been an amazing resource in these times. Um, so where can we find out more about your work, Michael?
1: Uh, so it's, uh, Either they could just Google Michael Mead, but it wind, you wind up at the uh, mosaicvoices.org website, and that gives access to the, uh, the weekly uh, podcast called Living Myth, uh, which is free. And then there's a way to support that podcast and the other work by joining a Patreon page kind of thing, a Patreon membership, but then there's also books and there's video recordings and audio recordings. And now we have the recordings of live series that we've been doing all this year on these same subjects. There's one on rights of pastors. There's one on genius. And so that's all there at the website. And then there's books to read and, you know,
0: cool. All right. So, so thanks so much, man. I feel really enlivened by this. I've really enjoyed this conversation and, um, I wish you well to go forth and be a light in these times, you know, to, to, yeah, to touch people in the depths of their souls. So thanks, Michael.
1: Yeah. And thanks. Good to be with you again, Joel, and, and good luck and, and, and good health with all the work you're doing.
0: All right. Thanks. Hello. Here we are at the end of the podcast. Once again, I'll just say if you want to join our community, that would be awesome, Uh, coaches and facilitators and people who are dedicated to growing their capacity to facilitate deep transformation in the people they work with, then you can do so. You can just head to our website and then put your name in the sign-up box. CoachesRising.com is the website. Scroll down and you'll find the sign-up box there and then you'll just stay in the loop about the things we create that aren't this podcast. So until next time, I just want to wish you all the best.